You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, we're uh, going back to the beginnings again. We went back there last week to look at the beginning of the universe. And we look specifically at the very first day of creation. We touched on the timing of creation. So was it six literal 24-hour days, as the text implies? Or was it over billions of years, as modern scientists insist? Was it relatively recent, as recent as 6,000 years ago? Or was it 13 billion years ago? And what caused the universe Was it created by God himself out of nothing, ex nihilo, the Latin term is, as the Bible claims? Or was there a Big Bang event that uh, caused the universe to come into being? And maybe there's other explanations. Maybe this universe exists because there was another universe somewhere that ruptured and its contents generated the one that we live in. Sounds like science fiction, but many are proposing that sort of explanation. Or maybe the universe has always existed. It's eternal. Well, uh, we looked at that, and uh, I think we all could agree that uh, that is nonsense. It doesn't fit the laws of science as we understand them today. I declared my position that I'm a literal 24-hour-day young earther. And uh, that's sure to get me mocked by virtually every non-Christian, but also by a large number of Christians too. But that's all right. I've already learned that God doesn't lie. He's uh, found his word to be reliable enough in every other area that I've looked at it that I'm happy to believe his explanation here in Genesis 1 of how and when he did it. And after all, Jesus seemed to believe that that's how the universe came about, and you'd reckon he'd have a pretty good idea, seeing as he created it in the beginning. Now, we only got as far as day one last week, the initial act of creating everything. Unlike humans who create art or buildings using existing materials, God started with nothing. He created all the materials that make up this vast universe. There were no atoms or chemicals prior to this event. There were no laws of thermodynamics. There was no gravity. There were no hydraulic properties of water because there was no water. He created it. And today we'll look at the other five days of creation leading up to and including the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. So let's refresh our memories by reading the text in Genesis chapter 1. It's a reasonably long chapter, so bear with me. It starts off, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. 
And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our, like, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Picking up the events in verse 6, it would appear that the earth 
truly was a blue dot in the expanse of the universe. You've seen photos of the Earth from space that uh, because of the amount of water that's on the Earth, it appears to be a blue dot in the, in the universe. There was no dry land on day two, but the whole surface of the Earth was covered with water. I remember reading somewhere once that if all the mountains and hills and valleys and plains were levelled out, that the whole earth would be covered with a layer of water maybe a metre deep. I don't remember the exact details of the depth, but there'd be no dry land anywhere. That seems to be the situation here in verses 6 to 8 on the second day. There was a layer of water encompassing the whole earth at ground level, and God separated some of it and raised it up into the atmosphere. Now, I have no idea what this entailed. It suggests there's some sort of canopy of water above the earth, maybe a thick layer of clouds or something like that. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and God called the expanse heaven. So there's a separation between the waters surrounding the earth itself and the waters that are now in the skies. It could be that there was no atmosphere. There was no air surrounding the earth at this stage. I haven't uh, taken time to research what other scholars think about that. That's just speculation on my part. But there was evening and there was morning, the second day. It's not until day three that dry land appears. God gathers together the lower waters into one place so that there would be dry land. And the dry land he calls earth and the waters he called seas. This suggests to me that there was probably one land mass surrounded by water rather than the seven separate continents that we know now. You'll sometimes hear scientists talking about continental drift and Gondwana land, the theory that essentially all the continents that we know today were once joined together as a sort of a supercontinent, and they all gradually split off and drifted apart into the geographic world that we know today. Interestingly, this is not too far removed from what Genesis 1 seems to imply. Now, regardless of whether this theory conforms with Scripture or not, God saw the work that he had done, and he declared it to be good. His next act, still by merely speaking, let there be, is the creation of plant life, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees. Have you ever thought about how amazing these seed-bearing plants are. Their design and their function is incredible. Because of the design of these plants, the world's farmers are able to produce enough feed for the whole population of 8 billion people, many times over, every year. Think about it. A single grain of wheat, the most commonly grown crop in the world, springs up into a single stalk of wheat that produces around about five more grains on average. Those five grains, if planted, will produce 25 grains, which, if then planted, would produce 125 grains, and so on. In 10 seasons, that single stalk grown from a single grain will result in 10 million grains of wheat. Now, imagine how many multiplied billions of stalks of wheat are grown around the world every year, to say nothing of the barley and the rye and the oats, or apples and oranges and pears, or tomatoes, pumpkins and beans. 
This miracle of creation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees with seeds, supply enough food to fill the belly of every person on the planet, even today. Starvation anywhere is not from a lack of food produced. It's from a lack of determination to get that food to where it's most needed. We produce more than enough food for every person on the planet. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. On day four, God not only creates every single star in the heavens, he places every one of them exactly where he wants them to be. He puts them there for a purpose, or a few purposes, actually, the scripture tells us. He puts them in the expanse of the heavens for signs. Now, what does that mean, for signs? Some think it means zodiac signs, and they produce horoscopes, supposedly predicting your future based on the location of the stars in the heavens. And I seriously doubt that that was God's intention. I think he had much more important things in mind than uh, vague predictions. The stars are invaluable for navigation, for example, especially in the days before GPS technology. An accomplished sailor could navigate his way around the world safely and accurately just based on the position of the stars in the sky. The stars are also invaluable for marking the passage of time. In fact, their movement across the heavens is so reliable that you can, can, you can calculate exactly where in the sky a particular star will be in 10,000 years' time. The sun and the moon and the stars were also given for seasons. Have you thought about how amazing seasons are? We have seasons because our planet is on a tilt relative to the sun. That means that as it rotates around the sun, the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun for six months, thus warming up the north more than the southern hemisphere. And then it's reversed for the next six months, so we southerners begin to warm up and move into our summer, while the northerners experience winter. This cycle provides ideal conditions for planting a wheat crop, for watching it grow to maturity until the summer harvest, and then it provides time for the soil to rest and recover and be watered ready for the next crop to go in. It's a cycle that's been going on with regularity for thousands of years. It's so reliable that, barring the occasional drought, farmers count on it. The seasons also provide us with regular relief from the stifling heat of summer or the bitter cold of winter. Who doesn't love a gorgeous spring day or the colours of autumn as the leaves begin to change colour? Who doesn't love a summer's day at the beach or drinking hot chocolate around an open fire in winter? The seasons provide us with these simple pleasures every year. Now imagine if the, if the earth didn't rotate on its axis. If one side always faced towards the sun, it would soon be baked to a barren desert, and the other side would be a frozen wasteland. If that were the case, this planet could not sustain life at all, let alone 8 billion people and all the animal kingdom and all the plant life. This planet is perfectly positioned and designed by God. Consider the moon. 
The moon is more than just a shiny disc in the sky that looks pretty when it rises, especially a full moon. It's a stunning sight when it rises over the mountains. Now, the gravitational pull of the moon creates the ocean tides, which not only provides us with good fishing, but ensures that the oceans don't stagnate and become toxic. Truly, this is all marvellous design, and not one bit of it was accidental. The universe is amazing. You've probably seen Hubble Space Telescope photos of the farthest reaches of space. They are stunningly beautiful. And it is all the work of one person. Apparently there are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, the one that we inhabit. And there are 100 billion galaxies across the universe. The number of stars is beyond comprehension. If a computer were to observe observe 10 million stars every second, it would take 63 million years to count them all. That's how many stars are in the skies. And God knows every one of them by name. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Now, evolutionary theory insists that fish came before birds by millions of years. But God tells us that he created both of them on the same day. They can't both be correct. Evolution claims that fish eventually evolved out of the primordial soup and some of them grew legs and crawled out of the swamp, turning into dinosaurs and rabbits and snakes and birds and monkeys and, yes, even eventually humans. I think I prefer to believe God's account of origins. As Frank said last week, I'd rather believe the word of someone who was there in the beginning than someone who was not. So God created all the ocean-dwelling creatures, from microscopic plankton and lobster and squid and salmon, all the way through to the majestic blue whale that can be 30 metres long and weigh 150 tonnes. In fact, if the order of the words in the text means anything, the largest sea creatures were created first, not last. So God created the great sea creatures, it tells us, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. Regardless of the order, the variety in size and shape and physiology is stunning. And it is all the work of one mind. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth, God told all these creatures. And they did. Just as a grain of wheat multiplies exponentially, so too do the creatures of the animal kingdom. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Day six, the final day of creation, and it's a big one. It begins with the creation of land animals, wild animals, livestock, reptiles, each according to its kind. And it ends with the creation of mankind. God has a sense of humour, I think. Last Sunday I declared my confidence that God spoke truly when he said he created in six literal 24-hour days. And I spoke of my certainty that evolution was nonsense. And the very next day, 
I went to see the surgeon who's going to open up my right shoulder on Tuesday to repair some major damage to the tendons in the joint. And as we were talking about the structure of the shoulder, he commented on what a poor design it was. One of the tendons, it seems, is too short to be much use to us today, apparently. However, when I was still a gorilla, he told me, the tendon would have been fine, for it's long enough if you're walking around on all fours. It's just no good for when you're walking upright. Now, I didn't take the bait. I'm not about to get into an argument with the man I'm asking to repair me, but it was sure was funny timing. I can't remember the last time anyone spoke to me about evolution and actually believed in it. And here was this man talking about it only 24 hours after I'd declared my confidence that's nonsense. Anyway, God looked at everything he had done so far and declared that it was good. It was perfect, in fact, without sin or death, at this stage at least. That's another reason why it's hard to reconcile the days of creation with the millions or billion years of evolution. If there'd been millions of years of death in the animal kingdom, I can't see how God could have declared it all good. But God's not finished yet. As good as everything was, he has something better up his sleeve. He's planning mankind. As wonderful as everything else is, nothing yet has the glory of being made in God's own image. So God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now that seems at first reading a strange comment. Haven't we been talking about creation being the work of just one person? I've emphasised it over and over again even today. Why does it now say, let us make man in our image after our likeness? The Bible declares over and over and over again that God is one. Why does it say here on the opening pages, let us make man in our image? Who's God talking to? What's he implying by this? I'll look into this further sometime in the next few messages in this series, but You'll just have to wait until then for an answer. Anyway, Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. And with a personal touch, all of the animals are created by God speaking a word. And they're given life by God speaking a word. But Adam and Eve get personalised attention. God, with his hands, fashions Adam out of the dust of the earth. And with his hands, he takes a rib out of Adam, and as we'll see in chapter 2, he fashions Eve, and he breathes life into them. It means there's some important differences between us and the animal kingdom. And it's important for us to know this in this day and age when there's a push by some extremists to elevate the rights of wildlife to that of mankind and to reduce humanity to no more value than an animal. Even while we share many similarities with animals, we are distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom. I'll talk more about what separates us from the animals in the next week or so as well. But for today, there's only a couple of things I want to touch on. Be fruitful and multiply, God told the fish and the birds. They don't have any choice in the matter. If you've ever watched a wildlife documentary, 
you would have seen the irresistible urge that animals have to mate every season. They must find a mate to pass their genes onto. They don't have the ability to ignore it. Mountain goats will fight to the death if necessary to establish their right to mate with the females in the flock. Salmon and ocean-dwelling fish will swim hundreds of miles inland in freshwater rivers and streams to their spawning grounds. Butterflies, of all things, will fly a thousand kilometres to reach their ancestral breeding ground. The drive to be fruitful and multiply controls them. God tells Adam and Eve the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. But here there lies a the first difference between humans and animals. Even though God tells mankind to be fruitful and multiply, that doesn't mean we are forced to multiply. We can decide not to. There's a, that's a significant difference between us and animals. We can choose to not multiply. Animals can't. We can live 80 years without any desire to pass our genes on to future generations. Or we can make a conscious decision to never pass our genes on to future generations. Now the urge to reproduce is still strong in humans. We shouldn't deny that. Particularly women in their 30s and 40s often feel a great urge to, to get about having a baby before time runs out. So the urge is there and it's strong. But it's not an irresistible urge like the animals have. We humans have a choice in this matter. God has given us choice that humans don't have. Animals can't ignore that. The instinct is built into them. There are very significant differences between us and the animals. That, of course, is only one difference. There's many more. But the greatest and the most important difference between us and the animals is that we've been created to have relationship with God. The animals weren't, at least not in the same way that humans are. But as we'll see in the next few weeks, that relationship begins perfect, but quickly deteriorates into rebellion, shame, mistrust and isolation. Thank God that he already had a plan for the pending breakdown. He knew that Adam and Eve were about to break the only law that he gave them. And he knew that the result of that action would be to plunge themselves and the whole world into the darkness of sin and with no ability to extract themselves from it. They and we would be darkened in our understanding, darkened in our desire for truth, darkened in our ability to do right. The whole human race would be plunged into sin, becoming rebels and enemies of God by nature. We would have no desire for God, no heart to seek after him, because sin would poison every recess of our being. But the one who created the world in the very beginning already had a plan to overcome our hard and cold and dark hearts. He would bring light and life to them, just as he brought light and life to the original creation. 
The Apostle Paul, thousands of years later, recognised this pattern when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same process that caused light to shine out of darkness in the beginning, the word of God, now causes light to shine in human hearts to reverse the damage brought about by Adam's sin. You recall the beginning of John chapter 1 where John records speaking of Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Sadly, John also records that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They preferred the darkness to the light. But there is a solution. There is a way to bring light. And that way is still found in the Word of God. Only now it's delivered to us through the Bible, rather than spoken into an empty void. When God's Word is delivered and received, It does its work in the same way. It shines light on darkness. It brings sin to light and it leads to repentance. And repentance walks hand in hand with faith and faith unto eternal life. To all who did receive him, John writes, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. If you've never experienced that light and that new life, I invite you to call on Jesus Christ now to shine his light into your heart, the one who could create the whole universe with a word, who could fashion a living, breathing human being out of the dust of the earth, can easily bring new life to you. Friends, if you have experienced that light shining into the darkness of your own heart, if you have seen the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, you are now part of a new humanity. You're now part of a race of people on whom sin and darkness have lost their grip. For at one time you were darkness, Ephesians 5.8 tells us, But now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Now, because he has brought new life to us through his word, we have the opportunity to walk in ways that will honour our creator rather than break his trust. The original creation, in some ways, was a picture of new life being brought to the human heart we thank God for that, that new life is not brought about by a process of evolution, of getting better over time. It's brought about about by God shining light into us, into the very depths of our being through his word and bringing new life, eternal life that will never fail. Let's pray, shall we? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glories we see in it, the amazing work that you have done in creation. We thank you that it tells us that that is all of your mind, Lord, that is all of your plan, that is all of your power, that we can look to the skies and see distant stars millions of light years away, how that light transverses millions of light years in the space of six days. Lord, we, we have no way of knowing. But Lord, we trust your word. We trust that when you speak, you do not lie. We trust your power, Lord, to create not just the universe, but to create humans, to create us, and to create new life in us. Lord, we declare our trust in Jesus Christ, the one whose very hand created all the wonders we see when we step outside. We put our trust in him to lead us, to guide us, to keep us safe. Lord, we invite you by your spirit to speak to our hearts that your word, as we heard Ian read this morning, would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we worship you, creator of all things, indescribable, uncontainable, incomparable, the mighty God. Lord, would you lead us every step of our days and Lord, would you shine your light on the hearts, the minds, the souls, of our friends and our family who don't yet know you, Jesus. Would you bring that light to them, that life to them? We ask it in your name, Jesus, creator of all things. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.